0: thanks for listening to a long time in finance with jonathan ford and neil collins in partnership with briefcase news the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media mantra. everybody agrees that we need to build more homes the labor party promised to do so this week when it announced that it was going to build new towns if it selected as next government. But the Conservatives have another approach. They want to unlock 100,000 new homes by reforming inherited EU rules about nutrient neutrality. These are designed to stop pollutants pouring into protected watercourses in well, the whole of the UK, really. Environmental NGOs and opposition politicians are furious and Doug Parr from Greenpeace said the Tory decision was a sure sign that ministers have completely given up on saving our great waterways and the precious wildlife they host. While a Lib Dem MP Tim Farron, called it disgraceful while the Wildlife Trust described it as disgusting and the RSPB called ministers liars. So The whole debate's dissented on claims that the change breaches a Tory promise not to weaken environmental protections. The question, I suppose, is whether that's really the right way to think about what's going on here. You know, what are those rules? How do they work? And what are they designed to do? And given the accepted need to build more homes, are there not sensible trade-offs we need to take account of when thinking about developments? So we thought we'd try and do an explainer on what the whole new, nutrient neutrality row is about, why it's important, and whether there are other ways to achieve the objectives. And we're joined to do that by Robert Colville, Director of the Centre for Policy Studies. Hi, Robert. Hello. It's worth saying at the beginning that you have published, your organisation has published documents called the Case for house building.
1: Uh, and indeed, I've called Tory MPs who, are, who oppose planning reforms, traitorous, awful, wastes of, I mean, I can't even remember what language I use, but I am. it's fair to say I'm probably one of the most vocally pro-house building people in British public life. But I will, I will, I will try to remain fair and balanced uh, throughout. So
0: I suppose we should kick off by just trying to, getting you to describe what this rule that's got everyone so steamed up is all about. What is nutrient neutrality? What's the rule designed to achieve? And is it an important objective to achieve?
1: OK, so the story starts, like every Pacey thriller, with the EU Habitats Directive, which was brought in in 1992, I think. Um, and this basically asked member states to identify conservation areas and conservation species that should be protected. Uh, fast forward to 2018 i think it is and it, essentially the, the sort of the dutch equivalent of julian moore sort of um, a small sort of a one-man environmental activist charity who just throws lawsuits after lawsuit at the government to try and get them to cut carbon emissions and so on he gets a case taken through which basically says look if you have people farming near these sites and if you have runoff from fertilizer in particular, nitrate fertilizer, contaminating these sites, that's surely a bad thing. The ECJ basically agrees with him and says, before engaging in any projects in the vicinity of these sites, it needs to be beyond all reason beyond all scientific doubt that there will be no additional pollution. At which point we and the Dutch seem to be the ones who take this quite seriously. The the Dutch belong to this extraordinary story where they basically decide they need to shut down half of their farming industry, which has one of the biggest farming industries in Europe is quite hard to do, which leads to tractors blockading motorways, which leads to the formation of a new political party, which is now ahead in the polls. So, uh, you know, it's the equivalent of of Jeremy Clarkson and Clarkson's farm suddenly sort of getting into Downing Street. Here, we don't go for that, that route. But what does happen is that natural England, whose responsibility it is to protect these sites, writes to councils near quite a lot of them and says, look, there are these rules. And in order to ensure that these rules are kept, we're going to have to do something something different on, on house building. We're going to have to mitigate. And we're not quite sure what that is yet. But for, so for the time being, basically, let's just pause all this house building stuff until we can get a handle on this situation.
0: So Natural England advised the councils to basically... What? Stop permitting any new housing at all in these areas?
1: It's not quite phrased that way, but the effect is the Home Builders Federation estimates from their members that it is something like 145,000 houses that have already got approval and been through the planning process are suddenly caught up in this, that essentially they they, they can't be delivered. And this situation just sort of has been going on for the last three or four years. They've been trying to come up with various mitigation strategies. The argument that the house builders would make, and I would make because I am a house building fanatic, is that What's happened over since that ruling is that the the, the neutrality principle has been taken more widely. The actual original judgment was about fertilizer and nitrates, but then they say, "Well, this should also apply to phosphates. This should also apply to recreation impacts. Idea that you know, the the impact that people make on these sites by by walking through them. This should apply to the water table. So basically, all any kind of impact is increasingly it gets gets caught within this. But in, in terms of house building, the key thing it's not the idea of something about building houses or the process of building houses. It's not even the idea which which you and I might think of of like you know the the, the effect on the on the water table that um, you know water it, flows through the concrete more more readily, and, uh, and stuff. It's about phosphates, which is basically just poo from the loo. And the argument is that the more people there are near these sites, the more houses, new houses you build, the more phosphate emissions there will be. I see.
0: And when we talk about net, what does that mean? Does that mean zero, or does that mean no increase on some baseline?
1: Well, technically, it means no increase on, on some baseline. So. There is a system that has kind of evolved over time to deal with this, which is um, the, the SANG system. So this is all filled with acronyms and stuff. But essentially, in previous sort of attempts to balance the environmental, you know, house building and the impact on the environment, what they said was, OK, you can build the houses, but in return, you need to set aside a you know, a given area as part of that project for biodiversity, mm-hmm. say – there are these rules about um every housing project over a certain size has to result in a ten percent increase mm-hmm. in biodiversity. So basically, as part of the house building process, build- builders are forking out for environmental goods. The argument on phosphate is a mitigation is a lot harder to do. B, this mostly sits with like this is actually mostly a sewage treatment issue. See, you know, most of the people who are going to live in these houses are already living in the area. I mean, if you look at who buys houses in an area, it's generally people who already live there. There's not actually that much net gain, and, and, and the sewage systems from new housing tend to be much better. In particular, they don't send everything down the same pipe, which is one of the big problems with sewage overflows, which is everyone's been talking about recently. But the most important thing is essentially that like, the volumes are very, very much smaller than with agriculture. Fertiliser runoff is a huge issue when it comes to water quality. Phosphate, not so much. Can, can, I, ask,
0: can I just have to summarise? I'll go so away. Neil, right. Neil, Neil, Neil's starting to sigh in a very ominous way. Well, word. no. I mean, but, but, know, but anyway, I just i just go I'm going just, to. have a actually. Okay, I mean. yep. yep <laughs> off you go. <laughs> Essentially, then, what we have is we have a situation where the rules are designed to stop pollutants going into rivers the issue here is that they've been interpreted in a way that has suddenly fallen on house builders to justify that their as you say relatively relatively small addition to the pollutants going into the river system is not increased but I think it's fair to say this is this only affects certain parts of the country.
1: And the counter-argument from the environmental people would be that the sites in question are the most vulnerable. They are the ones where the rivers are already at breaking point. And even if it's a relatively small additional factor, this could be the straw that breaks the camel's back.
0: So in terms of these 145,000 houses, is there any sense, because that's just a big number, obviously, is there any sense in terms of, if you look at the annual construction, what proportion of housing is potentially affected, i.e. house building is potentially affected by this. Because it's not all councils in England who've, who have these protected areas.
1: The estimate is it's 74 councils, so it's a decent chunk. And If you consider that we build probably maybe 200,000 a year, roughly, given that what's happening to the economy now, it could be a bit lower, it could be a bit higher. But um, nationwide, we, we've been sort of targeting 300, but not quite getting there. Yeah. So this is this is a sizable proportion.
0: So I'm going to bring in Neil, who's,
2: who's oh, got hello. a base for... Oh, I'm sorry. I've drift, drifted off. Well, let's understand. Can I ask a silly question? Which is, if the problem is sewage, why is this not the responsibility of the water companies?
1: This is what the government is 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 saying. The government's solution, which has caused all manner of eruptions, is effectively to exempt the new housing from the habitat regulations, from the from the rules. To tell councils, you should not. You should assume that these new properties are not going to increase pollution. Brackets, even though we all know they are. And they're doing that for two reasons. First is that they are saying, we will literally spend money to mitigate the impacts of these new houses, which will match or or exceed the amount that you would have collected from them as as a levy on the actual site negotiated project by project. But also, there is going to be a legal duty on, on the water companies to do much more to strip out phosphates. It's not going to get the whole thing at, at, the, at the treatment stage by 2030. You know, And obviously, if you build houses, they're going to be there. The vast majority of their lives will be after 2030. So, so what the government is basically saying is like, dear councils, please trust that this problem will be fixed in another way. So you don't have to worry about housing. And this actually maps onto something they're doing in California, where they're saying, can we please just stop assuming that people are pollutants? Because we
2: do need new housing. Uh, Yes, whenever a government says trust us uh, makes me extremely nervous and we can be sure the opposite will happen. But I don't understand why the government can't just put this obligation onto the water companies because they are the ones that are going to be dealing with this effluent. They are the ones with the expertise to do it. And they should surely be the ones where the responsibility for dealing with it has got to lie. By the way, they, of course, do benefit from every new house that's built. So why isn't it put on them saying, you can go ahead with your development, but you, the water companies, have got to upgrade your facilities, or whatever it is, to ensure that mitigation is sufficient?
0: There are two parts to this, I think. One is the sewage plants, which is the point Neil is making, that these need investment. There's also the question of agricultural runoff. I don't know the extent to which the problem that these rules are designed to address, what proportion comes from agricultural runoff. Maybe you can enlighten us on that. But to what extent can the water companies deal with that problem as opposed to the problem of not having invested sufficiently in dealing with human effluent
1: the water companies are obviously not the most popular people in in the world. Although one of the reasons we know that we have a problem with sewage going into rivers is because we, like other companies other countries mostly haven't bothered testing for it. Sure, Agriculture runoff is the big problem. You may argue that the evil water companies haven't invested enough, but broadly speaking, the, the quality of the stuff that they are of treatment plants, quality of that stuff, is, it, it has got better over the decades. But agriculture is the is the main contributor now.
0: So, to what extent do the governments? new approach take account of the agricultural runoff issue as opposed to investing in new sewage plants?
1: it does have an element of that so there is um, i think in total 280 million has been promised for the sort of house building impact and, and mitigation but there is also i think 400 million promised yeah i think this is over 10 years it's not quite as big as it sounds but but um, for uh, for slurry and sort of trying to trap the runoff before it gets into the rivers and there's a small amount as well for sort of experimenting with novel kinds of fertilizer which might not have have so much impact uh, but i mean the thing i find really fascinating about this is that like, fertilizer is like utterly essential to human life there's a wonderful chart on oh oh world's data which has um, you know shows the carrying capacity of the planet without fertilizer and it's about half the current global population like one in every two people around us owes their existence to to fertilize and yet in the, the these advanced western countries it has now become the baddie in holland one of the many points of controversy is the, the government is literally paying farmers to stop farming it's buying the, the farms off them and and either shutting them down or turning them into into organic farms. And I think some of the same stuff has happened here, which then gets into the whole debate about food security.
2: Uh, I'm sorry to be a bit dim, but I don't really see what this has got to do with house building. Because the rules
0: are about nutrient neutrality. House building is a collateral damage on that.
2: But if the house building, the extra sewage, is dealt with by investment from the water companies who've been told to do it, then what's it got to do with farming?
1: That's essentially a philosophical clash here. Between people saying, "Look, house building is a t- is a relatively small proportion of the contributor contrib- contrib- to this problem. It's also it's also a massive social and economic good. Let's find a way to strip that bit out of the uh, out of the thing and and pay money to compensate for that." versus a philosophy which says all pollution is bad and no matter how much you dress it up, house building is contributing to pollution. Th- therefore, the government is weakening rules on pollution and environmental protection, which is, which is the line taken, it's not just the NGOs, it's the line taken by the Office for Environmental Protection, which is a, I, didn't, I didn't even realise exists, which is apparently an, an official government body which checks its own homework.
2: It sounds more like to me like kicking the cat to punish the dog because <laughs> the uh, the damage is done by farming runoff not by sewage which can be treated.
0: That is an issue, and that comes back to, I suppose, if farming is the major component, and you started off by saying the Dutch example, the farmers were up in arms forming political parties and so forth, what does the government do with its £400 million? Does it buy land off farmers? Does it pay them to, do, to not farm? Do we have a sense of what exactly the answer is that the government is proposing to implement?
1: The answer is no. We haven't. We, we haven't done any of that stuff. The NFU is not is not marching on Whitehall. It's about slurry storage and capture. Right. And so it's it's not. I mean, it's spread out over ten years. Spread out over over all of the, these areas. It's it's not a panacea. I think it reduces the problem rather than eliminating the problem.
0: But the answer is you can't really eliminate it. You can only keep it from getting bigger and more serious is that right
1: well you could Yes. i mean you could decide that we're no longer going to use fertilizer in agriculture (laughs) and then we we, half of us have to leave yeah or starve
0: to death (laughs) yeah quite one of the uh critics if you like of the government is uh, matthew paris who in his column in the times Suggested that there was a private sector solution to this, which was for house builders who wanted to build in these protected areas essentially to pay the farmers directly as opposed to route it through the government. And I suppose the argument there is yes, it would raise house prices in those areas, but if you wanted to live in a nice area with a protected habitat nearby, you would have to effectively indirectly pay for the privilege by paying the farmers to stop pouring slurry into the rivers. And his criticism is the government, by stepping in, has removed that private sector solution from the table. What What do you make of his arguments?
1: Yes, I mean, this comes back to Natural England's original approach, which was a sort of scheme by scheme mitigation system, which would be sort of layered on top of the existing house building Mechanisms. I don't think that was working very well. House builders didn't seem reconciled to it. it these houses were, still weren't being built, so obviously something was going wrong. I mean, m- but more broadly, I think there is a you know, h- housing is one of the and house building is one of it kind of like kind of like the water companies actually. No one really likes the companies that do it, and they're seen as kind of generally quite bad and evil profiteers. I mean, you know, one of the main reactions to the uh, uh, new and charity announcement was. This has caused the housebuilders' share price to increase value by £440 million. The housebuilders give money to the Tory party. Therefore, this is the Tory party enriching its uh, dodgy donors. The problem with this, of course, is that the Tory party has spent two years kicking the absolute daylights out of the housebuilding sector and calling them a cartel and sticking the CMA on them and doing all sorts of other things. But also getting, it's getting cause and effect wrong. Housebuilders' shares have gone up because people think this means we will build more houses. It's the building more houses thing that actually matters. There, there's this kind sort of idea that house, house builders have these extraordinary profit margins and that we can we can extract much more from the, from the process. But there are so many different levies and taxes on housing. There are so many obligations they have to fulfill that the more you load on basic economics, right? The more, you know, the, the, the less money you can make doing something, less, the less of it you do.
2: I'm still being very dim, I'm afraid. I mean, I can see that, uh, you know, everybody's in favor of house building in the same way as they're all in favor of wind farms, as long as they're not near me and uh, the same applies with housing. But do you think that the local authorities have basically been pushed into a corner by the cascade of regulations that the house builders have got to meet in order for a housing development to take place? I would just say that the proportion of houses which are built by the half dozen big house builders is going up all the time as the smaller ones are being squeezed out by the sheer weight of obligations that they have to fulfill before they can lay a brick
1: The SME house builder sector has relentlessly shrunk since the 1980s. And what's going on there, I think, is is a slightly different thing, which is that um, house building is an incredibly boom and bust sector, especially as as we do it in this country. The moment the economy starts to look wobbly or or, or falls over clear for interest rates rise, whatever it may be, everyone gets nervous, everyone stops buying houses, people stop building houses all of the house builders downsize and then they graduate. so it contracts more quickly than the economy but then it recovers more slowly than the economy because it's it's a sort of big investment and people need to, you know, you need to sort of be confident that there's a market there before you start putting in these huge amounts of capital to do it. So that obviously privileges the big companies with big balance sheets and so at every downturn we've, we've seen a winnowing of the SME population but it hasn't recovered because if you talk to, to, to builders, you know, there's this kind of idea like back in the 80s you could, you could sort of drive around the country, you'd see a Sale sign, you'd rock up, you'd hand over a wad of cash, you'd get planning permission, you'd start building, you'd be done in four months' time, and you'd turn around and do another site. The speed with which you'd get planning permission, the speed with which you get through the system, the speed with which you could um, recycle your capital was much greater. So now, by contrast, there were so many more hoops to jump through. It's so much harder to get. There were so many approvals and consultations and reviews that you need to to, to go through. if you're asked. And the cost of like planning by appeal, legal fees, all of that kind of stuff. It just it makes it that it's just if you're a small company with not much capital, like banks won't lend to you really to build houses if you don't have planning permission, and it's going to take you several hundred thousand million quid, depending on the site of the size of the project, to get to that planning permission stage. So again, it's much much harder to to be in a sort of an insurgent to sort of um, to build stuff up quickly. It's like it's, the the big house building companies now are, are not only more dominant, but they are pretty much the same as the big house building companies you know, 10 or 50, 15 years ago.
0: So your concern is partly that by these sort of rules and the way they're implemented, you basically extend the time for projects, you increase the risk capital that the house builders need to have to sustain themselves and you end up with fewer and fewer house builders.
1: Yes, but it's also worth pointing out this, isn't, this is not great for councils either. Like, there's are lots of councils who don't like house building or don't like build house building in the quantities that central government wants them to build. One of the things, they, reasons they don't like nutrient neutrality is they have identified some land they think it's okay to build on. They've dealt with all the agro locally about this land being built on. And then they've been told by Natural England, hang on a second, no, we need to do some extra stuff with this, pause it, or we'll have some extra costs or whatever it may be. They would then have to find some other land somewhere else in the council area, further away from the conservation site, which will make more people unhappy about it being built on.
0: So what's the best way to handle these sort of environmental regulations? Assuming you think that they are actually needed, how to make them work in a way that's less... Disruptive and creates less uncertainty.
1: I mean, even if I didn't think they were needed, I I think it would be politically utterly suicidal for the government to try to ditch them. I mean, you know, there was there was a reason it committed to retaining environmental protections. I mean, you you know, but you see this, uh, you see this like when Simon Clark, when the trust government briefly tried to do investment zones, Mm. there was a sudden, you know, orchestrated panic from the environmental groups that these would be. Areas where environmental rules w- would be set aside, and this was very bad. Hmm. And they, the government had to sort of instantly say, "No, no, 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 no. Honestly, honestly, no, honestly, no. We'll, we will relax all regulations, but not those regulations, because we know how much you care about them. The British public really do care about these issues So it would be sort of it would be sort of electorally suicidal to try and try and take them on. But I, I genuinely think the nutrient neutrality stuff is the, the government's approach is, is is quite a good one of make, make, making you making trade offs, ensuring overall, that overall there is still a commitment that the you know, the overall impact won't be bad. But it, but the monstering that it's received. Which shows how hard this can be.
2: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I, I, I would agree with you that uh, that the, this is a very positive and intelligent move. And I'm really disappointed with the knee-jerk reaction from these various conservation bodies because I think that some of them would be delighted if we'd never built another new house in the country. And indeed, if the farms were all reduced to organic And that half the population starved.
1: Or you just get rid of the sheep and reintroduce wolves.
2: Bears. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The great bloody beavers. Um, (laughs) Bison. That was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Production and editing by Nick Hilton and our sponsorship partner is briefcase.news. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on your podcast app as that will help new listeners find us.